0: Right. right. We'll wait a second as people start trickling in. Welcome back, everyone. All right. Hello, friends. Yeah, please uh, keep continuing to use the, the chat and the Q&A if you have any questions for this workshop uh, session. I'll go ahead and get us started. <clears throat> um, Hi, everyone, just welcome to our second afternoon um, session, uh, or our first afternoon session. Um, My name is Darren. I'm a graduate student over at Princeton University working on politics, religion and ethics, and I'm delighted to be hosting these uh, early afternoon sessions. The title for this afternoon session is Stories and Practical Strategies from the Field, Community Organizing on Race and Justice. Uh, Here we'll just be asking the hard, practical questions about negotiating faith, justice, and race in community organizing and church contexts. To lead this opening session, I have the particular privilege of introducing Professor Melissa Borja. Dr. Borja is an assistant professor of American culture at University of Michigan, where she is a core faculty member in the Asian Pacific Islander American Studies program. Professor Borja's work centers on the United States and the Pacific world with special attention to how religious beliefs and practices have developed in the context of the American state. It's just a super cool topic. <laughs> um, her book, Follow the New Way, Hmong Refugee Resettlement and the Practice of American Religious Pluralism under contract with Harvard University Press, draws on all history and archival research to investigate the religious dimensions of American refugee care. How governments have expanded capacity through partnerships with religious organizations, and how refugee policies have shaped the religious lives of refugees. Outside of the classroom, Melissa is also an avid public scholar. She's a senior advisor to uh, Princeton University's Religion and Forced Migration Initiative an affiliated researcher with the very important Stop AAPI Hate Reporting Center, and recently received support from the Louisville Institute to study Filipino-American theology and religious life during the COVID-19 pandemic. Finally, Melissa contributes regularly to the religious history blog, Anxious Bench uh, on Pathos, and publishes and lectures widely. In this session, Melissa will be sharing about how religious communities can better talk about faith and justice. Uh, I'll handle, I'll, I'll hand the Microphone so to speak over to Melissa and give the floor to her
1: Thank you you so much for that introduction Darren and I am so excited to be able to talk about talking Uh, And I think that talking and talking to people who have different beliefs and backgrounds um, Than we do is a lost art and a really necessary political intervention in these very polarized times So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I became interested in understanding how people can have conversations better. It's partly scholarly and it's also partly out of my role as a community organizer and an activist who's very committed to doing justice work in faith spaces. So I'll explain the scholarly context first. As Darren mentioned, I am an oral historian and I specifically use oral history to understand how faith communities have mobilized their resources and their congregations to help refugees resettle in the United States. And in my research, I have conversations with people. This is one way I understand how people make the choices they do. So as an oral historian, I think a lot about how to have a dialogue with people, how to listen deeply how to approach a conversation as an act of sacred presence. I also think a lot about conversation as a way that people change their minds on issues, expand their understanding, and change their thinking on very complicated and controversial topics. So in my research, I look at how throughout the past, religious people have talked about refugees, Refugees have always been very controversial in American history. And if you look online, you can see really interesting historical footage of, um, sort of uh, promotional materials to get Lutheran congregations, for example, to sponsor refugees back in the 1940s and 1950s. It's really interesting to watch. A lot of these promotional materials are of Lutherans gathering around a table having conversations about the very difficult issue of, can we get everyone to agree to do something to help displaced people after the Second World War? And I studied this in the context of the Vietnam War as well, all of the conversations that took place within faith communities about whether or not they should sponsor refugees, but also beyond faith communities. So a lot of the religious people who resettled refugees did important work of shaping the public conversation about refugees. So if Vietnamese refugees, for example, were resettled in the United States, if they experienced racism, the congregations that sponsored them would often have conversations with their non-Vietnamese neighbors to try to intervene and help the families they had sponsored. This is just a long way of saying conversation as a practice to me is a very uh, interesting expression of faith and political commitment. Now, as a, an organizer, I had a really interesting experience having conversation about difficult issues uh, a few years ago. I currently live in Indianapolis, but before I moved, lived in Indianapolis, I, I lived in New York City where I was very active in a congregation on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And this particular congregation learned that I am a historian of immigration and that I do a lot of work around undocumented migration, refugee resettlement, especially with the new sanctuary coalition in New York City. Now this was around the time that Trump had just become president and there were a lot of issues related to immigration and refugee migrations that were very much in the forefront of the public conversation at the time. And these issues were very politically mobilizing and politically polarizing. So at one point I was asked by my own congregation to lead a series of workshops to educate the congregation about immigration issues. And in particular, because there were threats to uh, DACA, which is the program to allow dreamers to um, be able to study and stay and work in the United States. um, I decided to focus a lot of my attention initially on teaching about undocumented Uh, young people, specifically dreamers. And I had a series of conversations with one woman in the congregation who was very insistent that, in the beginning, insistent that uh, immigration laws needed to be enforced and we shouldn't offer a pathway to citizenship and um, that this applied also to people who had been brought to the United States as children and were undocumented, so dreamers. It was very interesting though. Over the course of about two months after a series of congregation-based educational events and also long conversations during church coffee hour after these events, um, I really began to see her change how she approached these conversations with me. Because we would have these big group conversations and then we would follow up later um, one-on-one talking about these issues. And I saw that she not only changed in her demeanor and her approach to the conversation, but also she changed her mind on some issues and she began to see the issue of immigration in a new way. This really drove home to me the importance of faith communities as a context for having really important conversations about controversial issues in American life. And I think that the church context is a really special space in which we can talk about issues that divide us today. So that is the context in which I am approaching the things I'm going to talk about, the specific skills I want to encourage you to maybe take home and apply in your own situation. Um, the, the, uh, The possibilities that can be had if we are willing to engage in conversation with people who think differently from us about difficult issues, especially in the context of religious contexts. So I'm going to share my screen and I will uh, go from there. Can everyone see my screen okay? Okay, Let's see. So we need to talk is the title of the uh, session today. Um, and I see that there is a question. I am taking questions at the end. So I will probably conclude my presentation between 1.20 and 125. So please feel free to ask questions in the chat and I'll try to engage in them. Um, so I will talk about why it matters to take time to talk to other people. Then I'll give you two specific skills that I think are useful for you to bring back to your own situations and then talk about next steps very briefly. So my goal today is to empower you with a couple very basic skills that I think can provide a really important foundation for having dialogue across divides. And when I talk about divides, I'm often talking about political divides because I think that's very salient, but there are other divides that exist that make conversation about controversial issues uh, sometimes very challenging. Uh, Class divides, religious divides, Um, divides of um, ethnic and racial identity. And so I think that it's still very useful to apply some of these skills when having conversations with people who are different from us on a variety of different dimensions. So my goal is for you to walk away with a couple basic skills for how to have those conversations better. Now, some explanation. This content comes from an organization called Resetting the Table. Resetting the Table is an organization that worked for years in um, Israel-Palestine, so dealing with the conflict, the ongoing conflict over there. And in 2017, as they realized that the US was becoming more intensely divided than any other time since the Civil War, um, and as the United States was becoming more ideologically fractured, um, Resetting the Table decided to shift its focus to work in the United States. And it started a new initiative to focus on building courageous and constructive communication across political divides. In the run-up to the 2020 election, they created a really wonderful documentary called Purple, America, We Need to Talk. And you can view this for free online. You can see it on YouTube. It comes with a really wonderful discussion guide that is perfectly set up for a one-and-a-half-hour session for you to run in your church community, your school community, what have you. I'll put that in the chat at the end of the session so you can bring that forward. This is a summary of some of the basic skills that are provided there, Um, but it's really best done in the context of viewing this documentary film, which is about 20 minutes long, and having a conversation about it with your specific uh, community. So I highly recommend learning more about the work of resetting the table and I owe all of the things I'm discussing today um, to their work. So why does this matter? And this is, I think, a question that is worth taking seriously because it is very easy to not talk to people who believe differently from us. It's very easy to mute them on social media to avoid them in everyday life. Um, It's very easy to not talk to that person who doesn't believe in getting the COVID vaccine or voted for a different politician or believes differently on this particular political issue. It is easier to ignore them. It is more important, I think, to choose to engage them because of a number of reasons. I think the first is the value of sustaining relationships and community. So a poll after the 2016 election found that thousands of people all across America had stopped speaking to a family member or close friend because of politics. Something like 16%. That's the unraveling of maybe 50 million relationships. So if we are identifying ourselves as Christians who love each other and wanna live in community with each other, we should right there, already be concerned about the state of our nation. So we are at a point where it's often common for us to think about other people as being fundamentally bad, cruel, repellent in one way or another to write them off completely. And I think this is a real harm. Um, We should value relationships and should value building community. And I also think that we can only move forward and get people to think about issues in a new way in the context of trusting caring relationships. So the first reason is it's important to sustain relationships in our community. And the second is a matter of political effectiveness. If we want to be a politically effective, we can't just talk to ourselves. We have to be champions of ideas, but work in coalition with people who are going to be partners with us. I often think about the second half of a Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote. She says, fight for the things you believe in but do it in a way that brings others to join you. And that second half is often ignored. So we need to do all of our work in a way that brings others to join us. Um, And finally, having these conversations builds collective insight. We understand the world better when we look at it through the eyes of other people who are in different political positions, social positions, um, parts of the world as we are. Without communication across those divides, we really lose nuance and insight that can only emerge from connecting from those who challenge us and help us to see things we don't already see. And we often don't realize that we have blind spots or incomplete understanding or distorted ways of seeing the world. And so the more we have conversations across divisions the more we can understand the world better. Okay, so how do you actually do these conversations? Well, resetting the table offers two very specific recommendations about how to do this well. The first thing that they recommend is to slow down. And it's very easy to react in the context of a conversation and want to win a point and make sure they know this thing right away. The more we slow down, the more we can take the time to reconstruct the thinking of the people around us and the more we can respond intentionally and thoughtfully with our own perspective. So number one, slow down. The thing that slowing down also allows us to do is to do what's called reflection, which is an effort to demonstrate to people that we see them as they wish to be seen. I'm mean, say that one more time because I think this is a really important point. The goal is to help the people we're communicating with know that we see them as they see themselves. So you can show people that we've heard them to the point that, say, that they say, yeah, you got me. That's me. That's exactly me. You really understand me. That's the goal in reflection. So we want to be able to see them as they see themselves and we want to show them that we see them as they see themselves. So why is it useful to do this? Well, there's a wealth of research that shows uh, that the more that people feel that they are seen by those truly seen, I should say, by those around them, the more they feel a sense of ease and connection. Um, And even in the face of passionate disagreement, they feel more at ease when they know the person they're talking to sees them as they see themselves. And they are also more likely to be receptive, flexible, generous, and courageous. The goal is to capture the heart of the matter of uh, what matters to that person. And again, to communicate to them to see that you see them as they see themselves. So I'll give it a specific example of how this played out with the woman I was talking about immigration justice with at church. One thing that I realized would be very counterproductive would be to respond to any of her critiques by accusing her of being selfish, uncompassionate, racist, a bigot. This is very common in conversations on Twitter, would not recommend it as a way of having meaningful conversation with people in real life on difficult issues. What I realized is I needed to show her that I saw her as she saw his, herself. So when we were talking about the issue of dreamers, um, and we, I got a, a sense of over time, what she really cared about and why she stood on the issues the way she did, I realized she really saw herself as a person who valued fairness. Uh, and to her, um, some people's choices did not represent fairness and, and equal treatment. So. Um, it was in, it was useful for me to name that and say that explicitly. So in conversation, I named that I could see that she was a person who, who really did value diversity and people of all ethnic, racial, and religious backgrounds um, and that it's really important to her that we have, live in a society that is lawful and fair. Now, this might be different from how I see myself or how other people might see her, Uh, But it is important in this conversation for me to communicate that I see her, again, the way she sees herself. A second important skill in having these conversations about difficult topics is to be frank about the differences that exist between the two of you. This is a key mediation tool. It means capturing the crux of differences between two more parties and capturing how each person approaches and relates to that difference accurately and without distortion. So we want to get to the point that if both parties were here, they would say, yeah, that's the heart of the issue between us. That's the heart of the difference between us and you get me in relation to that difference. So why is this useful? Well, um, there's evidence that suggests that the strongest way to disarm the really potentially destructive ways of, uh, and the destructive charge of differences is to name them clearly uh, and directly. So as long as we're able to capture the way each party relates to the difference as they see it, then we sort of can under, just take the air out of the tension around it. So I'll give you an example of how this played out in conversations about DACA at church. In facilitating discussion about immigration policy, I posed the question: How should we address the fact that there are many young people who are undocumented immigrants brought here to the U.S. by parents, um, and who, by their parents, when they were children, and who want to live, study, and work here? And I said, Andrea, you want to be fair, and you want to, uh, and you don't want to reward parents for entering the U.S. illegally. Jenny, you said that these children should not be penalized for the choices of their parents and that these children are already part of the fabric of our communities and that it would be cruel to send them back to the country where they did not grow up. So again, what I did in that moderating that discussion is I identified how Andrea thought about it differently than Jenny. I didn't make a personal attack about Andrea's values or Jenny's values, but simply named an issue and how each person understood that issue differently and had a difference of opinion on those issues. These seem really basic, but they're actually very impactful as a way of helping people engage in each other more, listen to each other more um, and have more thoughtful, open-hearted and open-minded questions uh, and discussions more. So what are some next steps for your community this is a chance for you to think about, you know, where could you have a difficult conversation across divisions. Um, if you want to, I encourage you to put in the chat maybe where you would like to go, like maybe one thing that you intend to do as a next step or one conversation you would like to have, if you want to. But before I take questions, I want to close with this very, um, I think, thoughtful quote. It's from the executive director of Resetting the Table. Um, Ayo Rabinovich. He says, we hope that they'll, uh, they mean the people who participate in these um, sessions, leave thinking, I've never talked to a person like this in this way before. And they'll sit with that and ruminate on that. And it'll change the way they think of someone who is a political other to them. We're in this moment when there's a lot of seeing our political others as incomprehensible or worse and saying, screw them. The kind of shifts we aim to enable are for people to move from that toward a place of minimal care, of saying, I'm thinking about the needs, the history, and the personal life story, and the views and arguments of the person who I spent a day with, and whatever solutions, whatever I advocate, I want to make sure the world I build has room for them too. I really like that line. We want to, through conversation, shift all of our understanding so that we work to build a world that has room for all of us. So I hope you found some of this useful and that you'll be inspired to go out and build courageous and constructive communication across divides within and across your communities. Thank you. Okay, so. any Questions, let's see, I'm gonna sort So there's a, a question in the Q and A about how can API um, communities uh, respond to white supremacy. And I assume that all of the questions in the session are related to the session I, I ha- just had today, not left over. Is that right, Darren? So, okay, so um, in response to that question, I would say working in collaboration with other groups having honest conversation with people who are Asian American and also not Asian American, including white people. I do think that the conversation on white supremacy has shifted so much, even just in the past year. And a lot of it is because people are taking the time to talk to their friends, neighbors, family members, and shift their thinking. I know I've witnessed that in my own life. Um, people taking the time to have these courageous conversations about white supremacy and its impact. Um, And I think storytelling, first person storytelling is another critical way that we can make interventions in um, in racism in America. I think sometimes people don't realize the impact and the the pervasiveness of racism until they actually understand that it affects someone they love. And so um, having these conversations and also sharing first person experiences um, I've seen in my research, but I also have seen in the world directly around me, especially in the past year, can be really impactful.
0: Melissa, I'll draw your attention to one of the questions. I love this theme of talking about talking. So one of the questions here is, is how do we avoid letting talking or dialogue become an exercise in moderation which then undermines assertive calls for justice. So it it seems like, can one ever err by just continuing to talk when we need to be more assertive?
1: I don't see these as necessarily existing intention always because I think that a lot of the conversation about big injustices can often be uh, very gradual. And I think they, Take time, and so I, I think if we look, for example, um, at how well how the conversation about race has changed so much, even just in the scope of the past year, I think that we are in some in some spaces having conversations that are more radical than others. But I think it, we are seeing sort of a, a gradual shift that all of this is accumulating and sh- slowly shifting the general conversation. But I realize I'm not exactly answering the question in certain ways because I, I think that there is a real, and kind of the valid concern that having conversation can be a, a way of saying, okay, we're already doing something. And I think maybe the question is also pointing to the possibility that having the conversation might be seen as being enough. Whereas there were other actions policy changes, for example, that need to be attended to that conversation is uh, can't be a substitute for. Um, and so I recognize that sometimes real policy changes are delayed in the, uh, if people just continue to talk and talk and not, to, but I do think the conversation is a really key part of building broader support for long-term policy changes. So I think that they can operate in tandem. That is my
0: whole, at least. Uh, we have a final question, maybe, as we wrap up from Joshua Daly here. And he asks, um, he agrees that the church be, uh, should be a space for uh, these kinds of conversations, but how do we approach or work through the fact that some people want to leave the church or find these hard conversations sort of very hard <laughs> and, and sometimes at odds with the reason why they're at. A particular community.
1: I uh, have had the experience myself of leaving a church that I think was racist and difficult to be in. So I am very sympathetic to the person who might find a faith community to be less than supportive and life affirming. <laughs> so I'm very um, sensitive to this particular question. I I think that this is hard and I I think it's important for us to honor the fact that people need to be in faith communities where they can flourish and thrive. And it might not be yours, it might be elsewhere. (laughs) And I think we just need to honor that choice. But I think that as much as we can continue to live in relationship with people um, who might choose to leave leave a particular community for a place that is safe for them, I think there can still be really, valuable understanding, mutual understanding that can grow from that. And so my hope is that if, well, I will just speak from my own personal experience here because I I left a church that I thought was not a healthy place for an Asian American person to be. I left that particular congregation and I still have relationships with the people in that congregation and continue to urge them to think about Asian American issues in a productive, compassionate, wise and just way. And so that is labor I take on but I also feel like doing so is allowing me a chance to live into values and my hope is that someone who's Asian American in that church will have a better experience than I did.
0: Thanks Melissa for sharing your wisdom and for this workshop. Um, We're gonna jump straight into the next session, uh, which Melissa is actually gonna be helping um, host. So uh, we'll have to close this one now, but thank you so much to everyone who's uh, showed up to this session and this workshop with Melissa. Uh, See you at the next session. Thank you,
1: everyone.